Welcome to Technicolor Jesus, folks, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. On today's show, we are doing a little bit of a special thing. We are breaking format. We are doing our Christmas Spectacular. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor here at Amherst Presbyterian Church in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. And I'm Adam Hurlson, and I teach preaching and worship at Andover Newton Theological School. Matt, I'm back in Newton. I've stopped jet-setting. I've had to put away my cosmopolitan ways. And I've done it so that we, you and me, we don't have a guest today, can talk about Christmas movies. Sweet. So this week, we are talking Christmas movies and submitting their ministerial, theological, or homiletical value to all you people who are doing ministry during these crazy seasons of Advent and Christmas and Don't Forget Epiphany. We have abandoned our typical structure so we can talk about a whole bunch of Christmas movies. This is, in many ways, an opportunity for us to embrace the Christmas movie as its own genre. So what we're going to do is we're going to go back and forth, each one of us submitting a Christmas movie and its merit, and we'll uh, have conversation around that and the theological and ministerial and homiletical themes that arise from it. And I don't know what Matt's saying. Matt doesn't know what I'm saying. I never know what you're saying, so Adam. We're it's, here just, it's, it's, not, <laughs> it's not unusual. So we are going to uh, try and uh, convince the other about the, uh, the ministerial or homiletical value of these movies. So, Matt, you have uh, won the coin flip. You get to go first. What movie are we going to talk about first? Well, I feel like it wouldn't be Christmas if we didn't start by talking about A Christmas Carol. Like, I mean, I feel like A Christmas Carol is kind of the urtext of the modern Christmas movie and the modern Christmas story. Uh, <clears throat> and before I even pick a particular movie version of it, let's just talk about it like with a little bit of a bird's eye view. I mean, this is this is Dickens' novella um, written as a series of, of uh, you know, kind of, in journals over time uh, that has emerged as kind of the, the unstoppable juggernaut of Christmas stories. It comes up again and again. It is um, for, you know, a hundred years now, a really dominant part of the kind of stories that we tell about Christmas. And I think probably over the course of this episode, we're going to unpack a lot of the different themes. And I think we could probably trace a lot of them back to Christmas Carol in their own way, whether it's about, uh, this kind of uh, conversion moment that Scrooge seems to have, whether it's about how you measure that conversion in terms of relationships with friends and family, uh, different kinds of reconciliation and acts of forgiveness, or, or in, and I think especially in Dickens' case, the way it comes out in acts of mercy and justice and peacemaking, that where Scrooge becomes kind of reoriented in terms of his relationship with social structures around him. Uh, there's a lot of different Christmas movie... Um, Christmas Carol versions out there, a lot of different versions of this text. Do you have a favorite? So uh, uh, I'm breaking the medium slightly, but growing up, I always went to the South Coast Repertories version of the nice. Christmas Carol. Uh, and there was always the same guy doing Scrooge. And I can't recall his name, but he was the dad on 90210. Uh, and if oh. he, he's the type of character actor that if you saw him, you would say, oh, I know who that yeah, guy sure. is. So he played Scrooge every year. And there was one part of the show that always uh, excited me as a kid, which was after he's had his conversion experience and he's met with the ghost of Christmas future. 
he gets excited and there's a top hat on his bed and he somersaults into the top hat and then springs to his feet with the top hat on <laughs> That's his That's impressive. It was a yeah, it was a wonderful little stage trick. And it's about all I remember from uh-huh. that show is him in a nightgown jumping up with a top hat on. His I remember head. seeing it on stage at one point when I was too young and they did the Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come with this like huge shadow projection on a screen behind the stage so that the it was you know, at least 10 times as large as any of the actors themselves, and it just terrified the crap out of me. Uh, there's a lot <laughs> as There's a lot of contenders for best movie adaptation of this. Uh, I have a personal soft spot for the George C. Scott made-for-TV version that um, I grew up watching in my parents' household. Uh, but I love Scrooge, too. Uh, and, and Scrooge, the Bill Murray version the, the Bill, is pretty the awesome. The Bill Murray version is a good candidate, but I want to go out, I want to make a case this morning... Uh, for the Muppet Christmas Carol, uh, and and the Muppet Christmas Carol is not, and in some ways, uh, doesn't have necessarily the unique spin on the story that Scrooge does. Um, but it, and in some ways, it doesn't do the the kind of darkness and fearfulness of the story the way that some of the other ones do. And I think George C. Scott does this particularly well. Um, but what I love about it is that is the way that it does the language. I mean, one of the things about Christmas Carol that, for me, as a fan of the Dickens, that I really want to um, hold on to is the, the amazing Dickensian turns of phrase. And the Muppet Christmas Carol holds on to this by having Gonzo play Charles Dickens and, wand- right. and, and narrate yes. the movie by walking around in the frame, uh, kind of like the narrator in Our Town. Uh, and he's got Rizzo by his side. Uh, and Rizzo is not entirely convinced that Gonzo is Charles Dickens. Um, there's a lot of fourth wall breaking here. They are constantly in the position of having to break into different structures in London because that's where the story's happening, and they can't keep telling the story if they can't be in the room to see what's going on. Uh, but what but what it allows them to do is to treat the language with love and also a little bit of ironic distance. Like, Gonzo was weird, which is why he would use weird phrases, like the kinds of phrases that Dickensian English generates, but it allows them to be faithful to it, which is what I deeply love. Uh, and I think about it like, um, we have some of this as we face our own uh, Christmas liturgies. We have nativity pageants that, uh, for my mon- money, should include phrases like, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, even though it doesn't feel necessarily modern. And how do you do that? And can you do it that holds in ways that hold on to that language and love it, but also make it accessible and interesting? And maybe a Gonzo hand puppet is the way to go. So that's Muppet Christmas Carol to me is is a is a really special text, and so I'm 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 holding on to that one. I think I watched it last year with Elliot. Is there an opening number? Don't they sing? Yeah, a song? it's a musical. So there's a number of, of there's a, a def- bunch of different songs in it. Some of them are better than others. Uh, yeah, I think I I mean. I love that, uh, that part of it too, where you can you can make these little musical numbers in something that was you know initially literary, and and the Muppets get away with that more than others, I think. Oh, absolutely, and you could uh, so now it's not just Jacob Marley; it's Jacob and his brother, I think Robert, and so they get to be played by Statler and Ward- Waldorf, who sing the like "We're Marley right. and Marley" ooh, song, and it's it's kind of amazing. <laughs> and no, I won't do that again. All right, Adam. That's me. What's your first pick? So I'm going to pick something that isn't typically associated with Christmas. And it's the movie About a Boy, starring Hugh All Grant. Right. Uh, it's originally 
like The Christmas Carol, a, a novel by Nick Hornby. And it's about this self-centered man who gets to live off the royalties of a Christmas song that his father wrote. And the song is called Santa's Super Sleigh Ride, which is vacuous and he hates it. And yet it is the source of all of his income. And so the movie begins at Christmas and ends the next year at the following Christmas. And the movie tracks the way in which this young boy who enters into Hugh Grant's life changes him through love and honesty. Typical holiday fare here. What makes this movie stand out, though, is, one, it's Hugh Grant's best performance. And two, and more importantly, it's about the ways in which the unexpected breaks into our lives and changes us, and changes us for the better by making us more vulnerable. And so in the beginning of the movie, Hugh Grant likes to refer to himself as an island, and he keeps calling himself Ibiza. And so he scoffs at this boy as this boy continues to show up at his house. Eventually, he meets the boy's mother, and he's disgusted by the idea that uh, she closes her eyes when she sings, which is this sign that she feels too deeply that she would uh, become vulnerable to the world around her by not really caring what other people think. Uh, Finally, the movie culminates with this scene that I still find so powerful, and it breaks me every time I see it, where this young, awkward boy tries to save his very depressed mother, tries to uh, rescue her from her depression by entering a talent show to sing her favorite song, which is Roberta Flack's Killing Me Softly, of course, which is not a bad Christmas hymn. Just, you know, work with it. Uh, And... Really, this burden that this boy has placed on his shoulders or has been placed on his shoulders is just too heavy. And so even in this brave move to submit himself to total embarrassment, he's actually not going to solve the depression of his mother. And yet in the move of deep vulnerability, the man, Hugh Grant, who thought himself to be an island, then joins the boy on stage and sings with him. And then he even closes his eyes. And so it's a movie that is about how an unexpected guest disrupts our world. And about how that guest doesn't just upend our world, it actually opens our heart. And I think that's pretty standard for a lot of Christmas movies. But this, this does it with a certain amount of sensitivity, but also openness to the ways in which love doesn't solve everything. You know, but it... Sharing the burden is a, uh, an act of great kindness and generosity, and the willingness to shoulder the burden that's required uh, is um, it's a beautiful thing when that, when that challenge is accepted by somebody else. And so I think for me, as I, as I think about Advent, we don't really need another savior. I think about this as as the church tries to figure out what its mission is. We have someone who's going to save the world, and that's what we're waiting on in Advent. What we need are people to help us shoulder the burdens in the meantime. You know? So, I, I really love this movie. I think it's, it's really great, and in some ways improves upon the novel. Uh, and it pulls out that really important part of Christmas, which is um, 
that unexpected guests are dangerous because they might make us vulnerable. And it's kind of, it's, you know, it's one of those conversations about um, the kind of the relationship between the commercial Christmas and the quote unquote, like authentic or relational human Christmas, because he goes from the person who is, his, whose relationship with Christmas is based on the royalties from that song to a person who right. is more authentic and vulnerable and all the things you've lifted up. And I suspect we're going to see a lot of that kind of strain in a bunch of these texts. Um, and it should be, it's worth noting that, you know, a movie can struggle with the commercialization of Christmas and also be a commercial artifact about Christmas. <laughs> right. Um, right. I mean, it's, it's complex, right? right? I, I, I just like the idea of thinking about the Christmas season as a season of unexpected guests, yeah. you know, and, and not just that Jesus is this unexpected guest in the world, but also Mary uh, opens her door for this unexpected guest in the angel that comes. Yeah. Um, my wife wrote a poem once uh, that she showed me when we were first dating. And it's part of the reason I, I think I fell in love with her. Uh, and it was about the story of the Annunciation, but told from the angel's point of view. And the angel, at least in this rethinking of the of the story, had been going from house to house looking for someone to bear the Christ mm. child. And no one was willing to, to hold that burden. And until he meets Mary. Um finally he finds someone who's willing to take this chance, who's willing to shoulder something that is really necessary and accept the challenge and do what is required. And yeah, so I'm, I'm, I think Christmas is a time of unexpected guests and about a boy gets that really well. Cool. All right. What about you? What's next on your Christmas spectacular list? Well, it's, it's a little bit of a, of an easy segue. Cause I want to go from one British Christmas movie with Hugh Grant in it about cheap commercialism to another British Christmas movie with Hugh Grant in it about cheap commercialism, which is... <laughs> so, wait, before you say the name of it, there are a number we could choose Are there from. still other Christmas movies with Hugh yeah, Grant? Yeah, I think... About... Yeah. Okay. He makes a living right. on this stuff. But man. you all know we're going to talk about Love Actually at some point, so let's talk about Love Actually yeah. for a minute. I actually don't think that Love Actually is a great Christmas movie. I think it's a... I think it's a fun, sentimental movie if you want something that's super sentimental for the evening. Like, I don't object to it on those grounds. I, I do have a little bit of an objection to um, what seems like uh, uh, the, the, a film that has um, turned Christmas into an opportunity to um, be entirely about, almost entirely about romantic love. Um, it feels like mm. there's not enough room for other kinds of conversion experiences and other kinds of relationships and other kinds of opening um in that film where it's all so deeply uh romanticized um and a very right there's no there's no sacrificial love in the other oh no, i mean you could probably try to make a case somewhere here i mean i think sacrificial in a very romantic comedy kind of way but it's not there's none of the like opening oneself to the reorienting your relationship to the broader society that you get in Dickens, right? There's none of that sense of um, new kinds of deep, um, authentic vulnerabilities that you get between um, the the um, Hugh Grant's character and the and the son in About a Boy. Um, but what you do get that I really quite like 
um and love actually is uh is the christmas lobster <laughs> right that's actually very sweet yeah so you know we have the, there's the the daughter and about a boy who um is gonna be a part of the christmas pageant at her school and the part that she gets assigned is she's going to be one of the christmas lobsters uh at which point emma thompson looks at her like she's crazy like who the heck has a christmas lobster and a christmas pageant uh but i um and we finally do get to see the pageant and we get to see her be her Christmas lobster. And there's a whole variety of other kinds of wacky characters up there. And there's a bit of an instinctive reaction that's like, wait a second, there's no Christmas lobster at the manger, right? There's, like, there's no Christmas lobster in Bethlehem on that night. There should be like angels and shepherds and maybe some magi if you want to play a little fast and loose. You got your Mary Joseph, you got your animals, we're good. Uh, and uh, But there's actually a long... So I was reading a little bit about this. Uh, there's actually kind of a long tradition of uh, alternate kinds of weird characters that show up at the manger, right? And there's a there's a long tradition of um, and if you there's a, a um, to take this silence out for a second. Uh, there's an article by Jessica Hughes that we will link to in the show notes where she traces a bunch of the different kinds of commercial objects that have been available for sale um, or produced to go in manger scenes that um, especially coming out of Naples, where a lot of this stems from, where you have all kinds of political figures and pop culture figures that have always been a part of what gets to be put at a manger. And it goes back centuries to folks who were always selling kind of anachronistic um, pictures of saints or monks uh, who would still be inserted into that Christmas scene. And I, I kind of want to put the Christmas lobster in that tradition of, uh, if we get into kind of modern um, British uh, Christian practice where we have all kinds of different pop culture ephemera that show up in those scenes. But you know what? I don't think it has to be seen as secularization, which I think is their gut reaction. I think it instead is about recognizing that uh, all of that we all are invited to that manger and that it's not about going backwards in time to visit Christ then, but about the birth of Christ happening again for us now every year in a way that empowers and welcomes and uh, greets everybody, even like the crazy Christmas lobster. So I'm, I'm all in on the Christmas lobster as a way of talking about uh, all the different kinds of, people that get to go and worship and praise and be greeted by this newborn king. I couldn't agree more, Matt. I was doing some research on this recently too. And there's a really funny story about the, uh, the Madame Tussauds wax museum in London who decided to put together a nativity scene, but the wise men, at the time were like Tony Blair and George Bush and some other uh, political leader. And then the shepherd uh, were, were like famous footballers in England. And Joseph was David Beckham and Mary was Posh Spice. And everyone got mad about this. Right. And like the whole, uh, the whole country was sort of in an uproar over this choice. But hearing you talk, it's, I think it's a good example of, of those times where, why not? Right. No, exactly. Why not put them in? Let's let's recognize that this story has life 
longer than just some sort of ancient Near Eastern night. Right. It's it's not a it's not just a historical event. It is also a deeply cosmological event. And I think by entertaining the Christmas lobster, we allow it to have the breathing room that it needs, um, or at least to approach having the breathing room it needs to grasp its kind of true scope. Anyway, that's what I've got. What's up for you? So the next movie I want to talk about is Elf, which has uh, is maybe the newest addition to the real Christmas movie canon. Oh, uh, strong it, words. I, I think yeah. I I don't think that there's been anything since that has there have been Christmas movies since, but they haven't made an impression like Elf has. I don't think. Uh, and I want to talk about Elf from the perspective of genealogy. So. The genealogy in Matthew and Luke are important texts in Advent that we rarely ever preach on or talk about. And for those ancient gospel writers, the presence of ancestors, this, this linear genealogy is a record of history. It's as linear as history gets in many ways. Uh, and it's also a way f- for them to work out what we understand as family especially who counts as family. And I want to point out something in the Matthew genealogy that I think is especially curious, which is Matthew has this tidy way of summing up everything that's happened up until the birth of Jesus. He says there were 14 generations from Abraham to David and names them 14 generations from David to exile and names them and 14 generations from the exile to Jesus and names them all. Except with that final 14, the, the ones from exile to Jesus, Matthew only lists 13 people. And the reader is left with this question, like, who's the missing generation? And so as you might imagine, uh, there's like a lot of scholarship that's trying to figure this question out. Uh, but in a season like Advent, where children, progeny, the next generation are not actually a record of the past, but this promise of the future. Um, I think Matthew is helpful in helping us see the church as the child of Christ. Uh, So, Elf. Elf is, in many ways, about what it means to be a son. Yeah. It's a movie with two sons and two fathers. There's Buddy and Michael, the two sons, and Papa Elf and Walter, the two fathers. And the, fa- the family dynamics of the movie are really complex, actually. So who's the father to Buddy? It's not unlike the question, who's the father to Jesus? What does family require of us? What is our genealogy? How much influence should it have on prescribing our future? And... I think in the case of Elf and in the case of some of these other genealogies, in what ways are children actually capable of redeeming the people up the tree prior to them? I think one of the great joys of the incarnation, at least for me, is that this small child, helpless in a manger somewhere, is not just redeeming what has come, but also what has come before. And similarly, Buddy has this strange effect on redeeming his father to some extent, but also Christmas in its own way. Uh, so that that which has, uh, has been in some ways 
poisoned is healed by the presence of this sun. It's a stretch. <laughs> I don't think it's a stretch at all. And I think it's just part of this larger uh, thematic around kind of family reconciliation and family rebuilding that shows up in so many of these movies. But I think you're right to identify an elf, this kind of particular question about, um, about uh, what it means to be a child and what it means to trace an ancestry and what it means to kind of carry the obligations of that and the opportunities of it. Uh, my memory of the film is a little spotty, but I, I'm, I feel like I need to go back and, and check it out now. Uh. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's always in danger of, um, of romanticizing the young person. I think we see a little bit of that in Dickens, right? So sure. Tiny Tim holds an interesting place within that story. And to the extent that there is an innocent who's able to influence the hardened person we find back in the Christmas Carol. Absolutely. Uh, well, I think Tiny Tim is one of the characters in that story that works a lot better on the page than he does on film, because in film, he almost invariably ends up just being super ingratiating. Uh, but yeah, <clears throat> yeah, there's certainly a long tradition of that kind of, that innocent who opens hearts and, you know, uh, declogs arteries and all those kinds of things. Right, by, by function of being open and innocent. And I, I think to some extent there's this, this understanding that children de facto understand Christmas better than adults. So then let me make a little bit of a segue to a movie about a child who may or may not understand Christmas better than adults. <laughs> um, uh-huh, yeah, go for which it. Is, I think I know yeah, what it is. Let me... Uh, a movie that is both more saccharine and also more violent than you remember, which is Home Alone. <laughs> <laughs> I love Kevin McAllister. Macaulay Culkin's star turn. So this is a movie that is really strange to rewatch. And, and you may be like intimately familiar with it, but it was, was profoundly weird for me to revisit. Uh, for, and kind of two dimensions at once. once in, in one sense, because I think the violence of it is just stunning to me now. Like it is, it, oh, no. it is like, uh, you know, the like Looney Tunes level of violence played out with like an eight year old uh, that it just feels very jarring and a little bit less funny than I think it thinks it is, which is just the passage of time and the change of sensibility. Uh-huh. But then there's also this really saccharine stuff in it, uh, especially in this extended sequence when Kevin is out wandering around alone on Christmas Eve. Uh, he's looking into the houses of, of all these wealthy families in Chicago suburbs having very stereotypical kind of upper-middle-class Christmases. He's feeling all of this guilt, right? Like, guilt is one of the main currencies of this film. He believes that he is so mad at his family right before that they were supposed to leave that he manages to kind of wish them away. Um, that that he his relationship with his parents and his kind of mean brother were so bad that he is successfully rid himself of them and he begins to just feel awful inside about having done that. Um, there's a lot of regret played out in his face. And then he wanders into this church, right? And the choir is practicing a holy night. Um, and he sees, he sits down in a pew and he looks across the church and he sees across the aisle the like old scary man Marley, who um, everyone in the neighborhood is terrified of, and tells all these really scary stories about. 
And then Marley comes over to talk to him. And it's terrifying because he thinks that Marley is going to like whack him over the head with a shovel and bury him somewhere. Um, and it turns out that Marley has come to the church to see the choir rehearse because his granddaughter sings in the choir. And he can't come to see her sing during services that night because he's estranged from his son and he can't go to services with this family. And Kevin begins... Which, by the way, is super dark. Right. Very dark. Uh, so then Kevin starts talking about the regrets that he has for saying things to his family that he shouldn't have said. And this man... And, and Marley starts to kind of talk about the things that uh, he wishes he would have in his relationship with his son. And they have this very long conversation kind of comparing their families and their regrets. And it's really beautiful, and it's really weirdly, like, in the wrong movie. Like, because immediately, as soon as the conversation is over, the bell tolls, literally, and Kevin runs home because he knows that the robbers are coming, and we have 30 minutes of just crazed cartoon violence. Before, of course, we have this epilogue where his family comes home, they're reconciled, Kevin looks out the window, he sees Marley reconciling with his son and hugging his granddaughter, um, and and we cut to credits. I don't know how to feel about this sequence. It is, in some ways, I think the best part of the movie. Um, It is also the strangest part of the movie. It feels drastically out of place. It feels like they're trying to wrap a bow around, like, like, just the most vicious stuff. But in some ways, I feel like that's a very... It's also a very honest assessment of what Christmas can be, which is, like, a bow wrapped around a lot of dark, violent stuff that also happens either in our liturgical texts through the real story of exile and being a refugee and dealing with the slaughter of the innocents and all of the kind of real violence that comes into this story or the kind of violence that uh, surrounds the way that we tell this story in 2016. And so I'm just, I'm struggling with this moment a little bit, um, but I think it's worth revisiting and thinking about uh, both in the context of the normal Christmas stories that we tell about families that reconcile and choirs that sing beautifully, and specifically the way that it sits in a movie that is full of beating the crap out of people. Right. It's such a strange juxtaposition. Uh, and it's unfortunate, too, that they bring Marley into the violence, too. You know, by the end... Right. Kevin has ziplined out of his own house and is running into his neighbor's house, uh, which has also been burglarized. And it's there that he's caught by the robbers. And then Marley shows up with the shovel, the one that's, you know, supposed to bury children. And he beats the hell out of the robbers. Right. Uh, so even this person who, who you see is like, oh, he's, he's not a dangerous old man. He's just a nice old man. Like, oh, I, 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 mis- I miscast him turns into oh yeah but he's on kevin's side and therefore needs to resort to some of this cartoonish violence well maybe it's a movie Uh, about how these two people overcame their differences to collectively beat up the unwelcome guests that were at their door adam i mean there's (laughs) yeah it's also a movie that is so pre-cell phone oh yeah yeah well no no doubt you know it's 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 wild right i i um it's so pre-cell phone that they were able to do it again yeah Almost the exact same movie. Just substitute the crazy old man for a Central Park bird lady. And you have Home Alone 2. So, I mean, speaking of Christmas and violence, 
I'm gonna give you my next right. movie, which which is Rocky Four. Yes, it is. Which is a hundred. I mean, which is about ninety minutes, and I would say, and I'm I'm not exaggerating. Forty minutes of those are montage. Oh, easily. It is. It is like they decided that they were gonna. They'd rather just cut to the chase because everyone loves the montage. But they make a very strange decision, which is Rocky has to fight Drago, this godless Russian who dis- who killed his friend Apollo, and he has to fight him on Christmas, which is the most interesting choice as far as I'm concerned, because Drago is this machine, right? When you see him in his many montages, he's like running on machines. He's uh, they're like measuring his punches and for the PSI that they uh, that they produce. He's injected with ster- steroids, which is particularly ironic because uh, Sylvester Stallone is like so juiced in this movie. Like the steroid budget and the shea butter budget in this movie is like ridiculous because it is all just like glowing muscles. And so Rocky has his own montage set to the tune of Hearts on Fire. Mm-hmm. Matt, were not our hearts burning within us? <laughs> I think there's an important connection there, but that's, that's a different show. That's, a, that's our post-resurrection show. Uh, so in the end, Rocky smites this big-ass Russian, who, by the way, is not Slavic in any way, and he gets to do it on Christmas Day. This movie is like half Independence Day and half Christmas Day. And then in this moment of brilliant reconciliation, he ends the Cold War. Because his post-fight speech goes something like, During this fight, I saw a lot of changing. In here, two guys are killing each other. But I guess that's better than 20 million. Which, I mean, doesn't really end the circle of violence that I think Christmas tries to end. But I'll go with you for a second, Rocky. And he ends by saying, what I'm trying to say is that if I can change and you can change, everybody can change. If two superpowers are going to unite and put aside their differences, I think you want Rocky at the center negotiating that deal. Uh, So this movie is super idiotic. Uh, But stay with me here. Christmas is about redemption coming from unlikely places. And the redemption of the world might be an act to put away your bombs and put away your weapons and to live into this hope that the one coming is, you know, uh, beating swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. And in that way, Rocky IV is, uh, is fitting for the moniker of Christmas movie. Yeah, and, and I mean, this is, yeah, it's a terrible movie in a lot of ways, but Rocky in this movie is a pretty substantially Christological figure. I mean, they work overtime to make him into Christ crucified. And, right. And, you know, yes. for better or worse, he gets multiple, uh, in, in those, those training montages, he's uh, carrying logs across his back that look like he's carrying a cross. Uh, he, um, there's a long bit where he, uh, is, is, uh, uh, is 
talking uh, to his wife about whether or not uh, Drago was willing to die for this fight and how Rocky is willing to die. Like you have to, he has to be, the whole point is about how much punishment and bodily uh, abuse he's willing to take in, in the course of, of achieving this victory. Uh, and then in my personal favorite moment, the, uh, at the end of his training montage, which before brought him to the steps of the Philadelphia Art Museum, right, with the, like, big moment of, of circling around. But in this one, he actually climbs to the top of a mountain in Siberia, and then he thrusts his arm out and the helicopter does its pan. And he actually, this has a shot that very much makes him uh, look like the Cristo Redemptor statue over Rio, uh, whereas he's on the mountain looking out and, and kind of saving all the land below. So yeah, I mean, I think this movie is about a is, is about uh, geopolitical reconciliation achieved through this one self sacrificial dude, um, and it's not a great movie, but it's it's a it's a pretty obvious script. Yeah, it's awesome in that way. Right. It is. Uh, and and it's it's not nuanced and it's <laughs> not sophisticated. And. It's surprising that the first Rocky, which has so much character, uh, was written and directed by the same person. <laughs> Namely, its star, Sylvester Stallone. And it sort of shows, because Rocky in the movie has, like, four Lamborghinis. Right. And he's, like, constantly polishing his car. And Polly has this robot that's always following him around. It's very 1985 when it, ca- when it comes yeah. out. It's also super nationalistic, and yet it seems to have some hope in the ways in which the uh, the sacrifice of someone can turn the attitude of a group of people. And in that way, I think it does sort of capture something that's important for us to hear during Christmas. If, especially if you're hearing this from the sort of the the Philippians hymn, right? So I mean the. And thinking about the role of Christ in becoming a child is a canonic event that, you know, requires some measure of sacrifice. Right. And accomplishes the, the redemption between those who are far and those who are near that we get in Ephesians 2. Um, I mean, I think that's a pretty cru- crucial cornerstone text for this as well. Um, Right. So speaking of Christmas, all right. What's so next? Speaking of Christmas movies that are about hypermasculine '80s icons, let's talk about Die Hard. Uh, maybe the best. Maybe the best Christmas movie. So Die Hard is my personal. I think it's my personal Christmas movie tradition. Because uh, I stay up later than everybody else in the house, and so one night during when all the presents are are ready, I will stay up and put Die Hard on and do my Christmas wrapping. Uh, that's my my personal kind of preparation and Advent practice. Um. I'm not sure I would preach Die Hard. It's a that's it's a tricky one to extract some Christmas spirit from. Uh, I think there's some ways to talk about it, though. Uh, I think we do have to name that it has a ton of gender problems, um, and so we talk about <laughs> so we talk about Christmas as yeah. a like these kind of themes of family reconciliation. Um, Die Hard, which of course is the you know John McClane is the um, New York City cop who is going out to LA to uh, try to reunite with his estranged wife, and he goes to her office party at this big skyscraper. At at which point, it gets taken over by terrorists who are actually just thieves, exceptional thieves. Uh, and John McClane has to fight off all the thieves and rescue the people and make his way out of the the burning building. Uh, 
it's worth pointing out that like the the arc of the reconciliation in this movie is that his wife has not has, has stopped taking using his last name but by the end of the movie she introduces herself with his last name again so by beating the terrorists he has reaccomplished his patriarchal status in their household i mean it's not like it's not at all subtle about what the proper order of the family ought to be uh and it does it on the back of his like he increasingly losing his clothing. He takes off you know, increasingly kind of just total, um, what a Susan Jeffords, a film scholar calls his hard body that it's just like, it's all on him. Um, I, it's, it's still a lot of fun. I suppose if you wanted to do John McClane as Christ figure, you probably could like, he does get stripped down to nothing. There's a whole thing about taking off your shoes and it ends up, he's walking across glass. It's all this bodily punishment. He's not from that world, but he goes into it and he defeats the forces of evil within it. But I don't know. I, I struggle to get some kind of workable Christmas spirit from this one. That being said, I want to lift up two things out of it, um, which are musical because I think the best part of Christmas and die hard is musical. Uh, the first is the, um, perennial Christmas classic, which was Christmas and Hollis, uh, the um, Run yes. DMC track that if you have any sense, you'll put at the end of this podcast episode, uh, and which uh, is is playing in the limo as uh, as as McLean rolls up to this tower in the first place. Even better is and less appreciated is the film's use of Ode to Joy, uh, which is billed as the soundtrack for the villains. Uh, so when they when Hans Gruber and his team finally crack the safe in the building, Beethoven's Ode to Joy busts out in all of its full major orchestral glory. Uh, but better is earlier in the film when their truck is ominously working its way towards the building. There's this amazing musical cue, which is just Ode to Joy played on bass and minor. Uh, as the truck rolls up and it's isolated in the score so you can hear this da 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 and it's it's just amazing and and so when i especially when my head is down looking at the presence that i'm rapping the like the my the use of ode to joy in both of its inflections there is captures something about the full expression of christmas for me that the rest of the movie i think is missing a little bit so that's my take on Die Hard for Christmas, Adam. Do you have a, a better take? This is a yeah, pretty I think your music... regularly, regularly cited classic. Well, I think your music take is really interesting, in part because music in this season snaps our head in different ways. Yeah. It, it sort of serves as background until you uh, hear the song that you want to hear. Uh, I read about these, these guys recently who it's this group of friends who do the drummer boy challenge each week. I mean, each year where they try and be the last among their friends to hear little drummer boy. <laughs> and so as soon as you hear it, like in a, in a store or somewhere, when you hear a rumpa pump bum, then you're out. And so they go to great lengths to avoid hearing the little drummer boy. And I think that there's like the inverse of that too, which is to some extent we come back to these songs and we want to hear certain things and to have them sort of snap us back into this spirit. I think Christmas movies in a lot of ways do that. Christmas music does that. It's interesting that this is a, a tradition. I have particular traditions that I grew up watching. We usually watch vacation every some, sometime during the year. 
And I watched that with my mom because she loved it so much. So it holds a special place in my heart, even though I know it so well now. And it sort of ceases to be as funny as I thought it was. Uh, I think that's a sign of a good Christmas movie is its rewatchability yeah. and its ability to sort of snap you back into place. So I'm going to talk about the worst Christmas movie ever. And it's got a lot of fans. And I'm sorry. But It's a Wonderful Life is truly a terrible movie. And okay, buddy. I'm going to make my case. All right. <laughs> I'm going to make my case why you should not watch It's a Wonderful Life. This is, okay? just, this is Adam talking no. right now. It's not Matt. This is Adam making his case. Go ahead. Yeah, whoever. Wait, you got problems with it? You come at me. I'm ready to take whatever argument you have. Because at the center of this movie, and the thing that you cannot escape, is that George Bailey has borderline personality disorder. Okay? He both thinks the world is better without him, and so important that without him, it would have fallen into such ill repute that, like, flirty Violet becomes a prostitute, and Ernie the cab driver stares vacantly into the middle distance. Uh, he is awful to his wife regularly. He becomes super self-destructive. And most importantly, and this is why Jimmy Stewart is the best, even though he's in this putrid movie, he flies into a rage at a moment's notice. And it is so terrifying. Uh, he has these delusions of grandeur that are combined with the lowest self-esteem of any movie character. And so when you look at George Bailey and you're supposed to believe him to be the richest man in all the world, he has not dealt with some very important psychological issues that are at the center of him. <laughs> the movie also has another major problem. Pottersville, this sort of alternative universe that exists when George Bailey uh, never lived, is way, way, way cooler than New Bedford. And so the movie has done you a terrible disservice by thinking that New Bedford, this idyllic suburban town, is more interesting than Pottersville. Because really, I'd rather live in Pottersville than the dullest place on earth. Pottersville at least has a bowling alley and at least one black person. And so by the end of the movie, I'm not convinced that George has actually dealt with this rage monster that's in him. And I'm not convinced that New Bedford, New Bedford York, Falls, Adam. is a Be place Bedford worth Falls. living. New Bedford. Bedford Falls. Also, and this is just, you know, dessert. Uncle Billy is the worst. Uncle Billy is the worst. Who in, yeah. their, who in their right mind would give this man a large sum of money? Idiotic. Number two, this movie is two hours and 15 minutes, which is a full 45 minutes longer than any Christmas movie ever should be. And the truth of the matter is, it's a Wonderful Life is the real war on Christmas. It replaces the Christ child as the center of Christmas with this white supremacist, post-war suburban capital, capitalist egoism. And it tells everyone, you are the savior of the world, which is exactly what a man with a personality disorder wants to believe. And I hate that damn movie. End of rant. Yeah, it's a pretty good rant. I mean, and and, and I, I, you've, you've touched on some things that have always kind of 
bothered me about it. I think you're right to identify the um what we would now kind of call 1950s style white nostalgia that's baked into this as to, you know, that Bedford Falls is the preferred vision and Pottersville is not. I, I don't think we know enough about Pottersville to make the kind of claim you're making that it is preferable simply because it has a bowling alley. I mean, there, there's still a pretty deep, <laughs> uh, there's, there's a pretty deep economic argument in there about whether or not it's better to live in a town whose economic model is based on a build savings and loan versus a town in which Potter is kind of the, 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 the arch fascist. And so I'm a little worried about the fascism that your preference requires just to be blunt about it. Um, but, but, right. but so I, that's an interesting point, but I do think I'm willing to entertain that Pottersville has some economic problems though. If we're thinking about the suburban new upstate New York and its reliance upon savings and loans and industrial uh, manufacturing, I don't think, Bedford Falls has survived very well. Well, no, I mean it's all it's 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 all just weekend antique stores for wealthy New Yorkers at this point. Regardless, um, it may it may have turned into that town where Gilmore Girls takes place. So one of the things that gives me some indication that George Bailey is a terrible person is the way he consistently treats his perfect wife, which is terribly, um, like screams at her and then decides to kiss her. <laughs> Right, first meet, yeah. and then she does everything pretty well as a wife in this uh, suburban hellscape, and he still is unsatisfied because he's had he's caught some bad breaks in his life, and he still hasn't come to terms with the fact that you know his brother, you know, got to go to college, and uh, and it it's got a pretty bleak picture of like of this suburban life. And I'm not totally sure that Capra isn't also making a critique of the suburban world. No, I think you... Because there are times where it feels like it is so small. No, I think you're right. I mean, I th- I always, I've always thought that this film was a lot darker than we all pretended that it was. Um, a, because I think Pottersville is probably the, the America that Capra is more in touch with than Bedford Falls itself. Um, I have always thought that the, the film largely works as a pretense for him to do this kind of uncovering of um, some of what he actually sees. And I think you can make a very good argument as you've begun to make that, that the dystopia is actually in some plate in some ways to be preferred because it engages with a kind of multi-ethnic reality more than Bedford Falls actually does. But there's still a lot of uh, broken systems there that uh, need to be reconciled with. One of the things that has always struck me about the film is that line at the very end where they identify George Bailey as the richest man in town, and we're not entirely sure whether it's because all the people in town have now tithed to him, or because they are because his wealth <laughs> is his wealth measured in the money that has been poured into his house or in the friends who have shown up for him, uh, and it's not entirely clear which one it's supposed to be or both, and that seems to. Uh, both sentimentalize and kind of undercut the film. Uh, like, are we doing this expo- this kind of expose about the dark underside of capitalism in 1950s America, or are we doing this kind of saccharine Christmas movie thing where we all have, we all discover how much our friends love us and it's great. I mean, I, I think it's yes. And to both of those, 
um, which may, doesn't necessarily make it a a great film, but maybe it gives it a little bit of nuance. I don't know. Maybe it's it's hard to see that final line spoken by a brother that he deeply resents uh, as anything, at least to my ears, as anything but this capitalist dream, right? What What's the most important thing you can be in capitalism but rich? It's, it's not that he's a noble figure. It's not that he's virtuous. It, it's not even that he has lots of friends. It's, he's the richest man in town. And it always sort of stings whenever I hear it, in part because I feel like uh, it has bought into something that I think is in some ways antithetical to Christmas. And yet it's still hold up, held up as this sort of the paragon of Christmas movies. The, the um, if not its most important, perhaps the most influential. And so, the, for my money, the the comp for It's a Wonderful Life is uh, not actually a Christmas movie and not pretending to be a Christmas movie, but it's uh, it's um, The Best Years of Our Lives, uh, which if, if you uh, want to talk yeah. about kind of exposing um, the underbelly of America and the aftermath of World War II and small towns um, and, and all the different kind of race and gender stuff that comes along with that, Best Years of Our Lives is the place to start. Uh, I think that's the more interesting mm-hmm. text for those kind of conversations. Um, so let me just talk very briefly about one last one which is uh, to talk briefly about Miracle on 34th Street so we're doing kind of some of the, the big uh, the big landmark ones now uh, and I've, I've thinking about it in relationship to your take on George Bailey as, uh, as kind of having personality disorder and as being delusional, as being deluded and I'm thinking about Miracle on 34th Street as this movie that hinges on the capacity of its protagonists to make these non-rational decisions. Uh, so that they go through a film in which the protagonist uh, has to defend a man named Chris Kringle um, on the grounds that he actually is Santa Claus. Uh, and it, you know, the the famous scene is where in the courtroom it's determined that the post office has actually been delivering letters addressed to Santa to this man, which allows the lawyer to point out that in fact, the United States government recognizes him as Santa Claus and who is this court to overturn an agent of the, uh, you know, a branch of the United States government. And they dump all the mail out on the judge's desk, like thousands of letters uh, and it all kind of, it's, it's all saccharine and beautiful. Um, And then we get to this bit where, it's still all very kind of wink wink at that point. Like we all know that he's not really Santa Claus, but he's gotten off from these charges. And so it's going to be fine. Uh, and then the, the leads go, go on their, their Christmas morning drive that Kringle has sent them on. And they pass by the house for sale. That looks just like the house that the daughter asked for when she talked to Santa uh, and she runs out, and the house is for sale, and they find in the corner of the living room, like, the cane that Chris Kringle has been carrying around with him, just left there in the corner, as if to indicate that maybe he didn't need it the whole time, like Kaiser Soze-ish, like the limp was a fake man because he's actually Santa Claus, and we don't actually have to make a decision, but we have to open ourselves to the possibility and the wonder of it. 
it's it's no longer something that a court decides as a matter of law and rational evidence. Now it's something that people discover in a moment of kind of transcendent possibility. And so it's, is it delusion? Yeah, maybe. But it's also kind of majestic in some really beautiful ways. I think this film holds up in, uh, in some ways that are, are really special. It also happens to be um, heavily oriented around the narratives of women and kind of beautifully anti-commercial too. So there's some things that I think this movie gets right a long time ago. Anyway. Really, I know, and I love this movie. I think it's, uh, I think it's the right antidote to uh, "It's a Wonderful Life." As much as I dislike "It's a Wonderful Life," I really love this movie. In part for all of the reasons that you suggest, uh, it's it's attraction to wonder, it's inability and and or suspicion of rationality, and uh, and if we get through this podcast without talking just about the role of awe within christmas yeah. and and the mysterious um i think this is the movie that can exemplify some of that which is uh we are taken christmas is a time when we're taken to the limits of our own rationality and in some ways we are um forced back into story right how do we tell this this thing that happened how do we explain the incarnation except through story because there is no linear argument that can be made that makes any real sense and so uh that this movie seems to understand that inherent part of the christmas story and and i really love it for that i mean it's it's back to scrooge figuring out the the illogic of angels right when he wakes up on the on christmas morning and realizes that the that the ghosts have done it all in one night and he didn't think they were going to be able to because it didn't make any sense because all each of them come at one at one o'clock but they've but they've done it all in one night of course they can because they're angels they can do whatever they want and there's this the 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 that transcendent experience that kind of thin moment doesn't necessarily abide by logical and rational rules i think dickens got it and it bleeds through yeah the fracturing of time and space um, in the Christmas moment, uh, where the linearity that we associate associate with both um, is fractured by the presence of of this this divine thing. So, Adam, uh, th- that's the big stuff on my list. Are there little movies that you have you didn't have a chance to to opine on that you want to mention? So I, I always try and watch um, some of the Rankin and Bass stuff. Not exactly movies, but um, A Year Without a Santa Claus, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the sort of stop-motion animation. I, I still find the production value of those to be so intoxicating and interesting. Not to mention the fact that um, Heat Miser is like a, an earworm type of song that I love to sing during, uh, during the cold months of, of December here in New England. Uh, that's a really important one for me. I think Christmas Vacation, like I said earlier, is, uh, is one that uh, has the right moment of insanity that Chevy Chase does really well that is in some ways a take on George Bailey's crazy rant but in some ways, he's able to provide the necessary levity to it to give you the full force of the emotion without actually having to feel like you're looking at someone who's coming unhinged. Uh, so those two are, are really important 
in my own holiday watching tradition. What about you? Well, if we're bringing in TV stuff, I mean, Charlie Brown Christmas is is pretty seminal for me. That's the that's the the depressive introvert's Christmas, so I adopt it wholeheartedly. And it's got this kind of um, you know, the amazing uh, the the amazing testimony built into it. The history and production of that is really fascinating, and and we don't have enough time to to delve in. Uh, there's right, Linus reading Luke's gospel is just in, incredible. Yeah. I I I still love to hear right. it each year, which is I mean, and Charles Schultz is kind of notably, uh, unstable, but uh, to his credit, fought for that. I mean that that the only reason that was controversial even when it was originally aired, and he fought to include it, and I think it makes it really something special. You mentioned Scrooge really briefly. There's some other old classics that I grew up on, like Christmas in Connecticut and Meet Me in St. Louis and White Christmas. White Christmas is terrible. I mean, the song is beautiful. The movie doesn't hold together at all. Um, but there's some there's some moments in there that I really like. Um, and then we've got one more. So we've got one more episode before Christmas itself, which is uh, one more kind of Christmas movie. Uh, next week, we will be joined by Amy Merrill Willis, who is... Uh, professor of Old Testament and Hebrew Bible at Lynchburg College, and she is going to talk with us about Harry Potter. Uh, Adam is a well-known, deep fan of Harry Potter and is really looking forward to this. <laughs> no, so we're going to talk about... I went and saw Fantastic Beasts. It was pretty right. good. I was kind of into it. Yeah, no, I like the universe. It makes sense. So we're going to watch Harry Potter... I'm not like fanboy. We're going to watch Deathly Hallows Part 1. Uh, and talk about the the thin place of Christmas Eve in that movie and what it gets for us about uh, the experience of the, of the nativity. So that'll be up next week just in time for uh, Christmas Eve sermon writing and all that good stuff. But for now, that's our Christmas spectacular. Adam. And it, it was pretty spectacular. It was spectacular. Matt, I, how spectacular? On a, on a scale of 1 to 10, what would you give it? And it's spectacular. I would give it spectacular. Hey, Amen. I'm down with that. <laughs> All right, Adam, uh, enjoy the rest of your Advent preparations, and thanks for your time. Yeah, it's good to talk to you. Next time. Bye.